welcome back to Talking PFAS podcast. I'm a journalist and your host, Kayleen Bell. If you missed the last episode of Talking PFAS, I encourage you to have a listen. It was an interview with Professor Ian Cousins from the Department of Environmental Science in Stockholm University in Sweden. PFAS are widely used in society. I don't think the average person has a clue how widely. We recently identified more than 200 different uses and were frankly surprised by many of these uses. And many of these uses appear to be non-essential and can be phased out rapidly. An essential use is where the technical function in a use is essential for health and safety and cannot be replaced by another chemistry or technology. Today's episode is the final one for 2020 and the podcast will be on a season break until the end of April 2021, while a new season is in production and I take a bit of a rest. Today's episode is an interview with Juliane Gluger from Zurich, Switzerland. We will be discussing her recently published paper, An Overview of the Uses of PFAS. Whilst many people are familiar with PFAS being found in firefighting foam and Teflon and textiles and some food packaging, there are hundreds of PFAS uses detailed in this paper we're discussing today. So I started with a small list and it got longer and longer and at the end it took me a year to put everything together. And how many uses did you find? for PFAS? So we found over 200 uses and I identified over 1,400 chemicals that have been applied in these uses. Here are just a few items that my guest today and her team mention in the uses paper. Ammunition, climbing ropes, guitar strings, artificial turf, windmill blades, contrast agents in MRIs, piano keys, dental floss, toothpaste, toner and printer ink, golf gloves, tennis rackets, ski wax, fishing lines, filter membranes used in wineries, dairies and water and effluent treatment. Now to today's episode. Hi Juliana, thank you for talking with me today on Talking PFAS podcast. Hello Kadin. Could you please introduce yourself and tell the listeners a little bit about your bio as it relates to PFAS? So I'm a senior researcher in the Environmental Chemistry Group at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology, which is called ETH Zurich. And this is one of the largest universities in Switzerland. I've done here also my PhD and um, under the supervision of Martin Scheringer. And I'm still working very closely with Martin Scheringer. And already during my PhD, I've been working on sources, fate and transport of persistent organic pollutants. So these are all chemicals which are, live, are very long in the environment and which will not degrade very fast, which also includes PFAS. And I've been working on other chemicals in the past, like brominated ones or chlorinated ones. And now with this project, I switched to the chlorinated chemicals, to the PFAS. But even during my PhD, I've been in contact with this research a lot because some of my colleagues, including Martin Scheringer, and San Yung Wang, they have been working on PFAS and I was following their research. What is the field of study that you have got your PhD in? I studied biotechnology in Germany. So by training, I'm an engineer in biotechnology and now I'm an environmental scientist. Today we're discussing the paper that you were the lead author on, an overview of the uses of PFAS. It's quite extraordinary, very detailed paper about the uses of PFAS. 
And also, I've been very impressed by the extra material that you provide, uh, which is such an incredible resource for other researchers, for journalists, for manufacturers, regulators. Oh, thank you a lot. It's a huge amount of work. How long did it take you and your team to put this paper together? Yeah, it took me around one year. So I started last summer and I finished it this summer. Why did you and your colleagues want to write this paper? At the beginning, we had the uh, from the Federal Institute of the Environment in Switzerland. They wanted us to look into case studies to find alternatives to uh, PFAS users. So I started to look in these alternatives and then I realized there are so many uses which we were not aware of. So colleagues of mine suggested, can you put all these uses that you found together and so that we have a list with the users. So I started with a small list and it got longer and longer. And at the end, yeah, it took me a year to put everything together. And I think it's now an important work, but it also was a lot of work to put this all together. And how many uses did you find for PFAS? So we found over 200 uses and I identified over 1,400 chemicals that have been applied in these uses. The uses paper states that it, together with the appendix and the ESI, the Electronic Supplementary Information, aims to provide a broad but not exhaustive overview of the uses of PFAS and associated individual substances. The paper addresses the following. In which use categories have PFAS been employed and for which functions? Which PFAS have been and are still used in a certain category? What is the extent of the uses in certain parts of the world? We put them in industrial branches and in other use categories. And I think we had around, I think, 40 industrial uses and um, another like 60 other use categories. What are you hoping this paper will achieve? In Europe, there are five European states and they have the aim to regulate PFAS. It's a whole broad restriction proposal that they are putting forward. And my hope is that they can use information from the article to uh, find out which of these uses are essential and which are not, and that they know which uses they have to look at to regulate them. Within the European Union, there are discussions underway for restricting PFAS to those uses that are essential, and extensive information on many PFAS uses will be needed in this context. The present work also aims to support this process by showing in which specific applications PFAS are used and in which functions as a first step towards differentiating essential and non-essential uses of PFAS. There are five European states. I think it's Germany, Netherlands, Sweden, Norway and Denmark. They want to put forward a REACH restriction proposal for all PFAS. So REACH is a European chemical regulation. REACH stands for Registration, Evaluation, Authorization and Restriction of Chemicals. It entered into force on the 1st of June 2007. REACH applies to all chemical substances, not only those in industrial processes, but also in our day-to-day -day lives, for example in cleaning products, paints, as well as in articles such as clothes, furniture, electrical appliances. Therefore, the regulation has an impact on most companies across the European Union. Germany, the Netherlands, Norway... Sweden and Denmark are all working on a REACH restriction proposal to limit the risks to the environment and human health from the manufacture and use of all per- and polyfluoroalkyl substances, PFAS. It's not yet really defined what will be a PFAS under the definition, but they will have to look at all the uses 
to us at the end find out what is essential and what is non-essential. The PFAS uses paper by my guest today states, the large number of uses that exist for PFAS, together with the large number of individual substances, makes their regulation and eventual phase-out very challenging. The approach of allowing PFAS only in essential use as suggested, for example, in the EU strategy paper, elements for an EU strategy for PFAS will not be easy to implement if regulators try to assess all uses individually. The information in this study may also help regulators and scientists determine which PFAS to measure in contaminated areas, in humans, in surrounding communities and in products. I think you have talked about with Ian about essential uses before. These five European countries, they will use this concept to regulate PFAS in Europe. I did talk with Ian about that in the last episode, so listeners can jump on there and have a listen. You also were a contributor to that paper as well, weren't you? No, I have not contributed to this essential use paper, but Ian has contributed to my paper. He is much longer in the field than I am. He is there since 20 years, and many of my co-authors are also very experienced, so they have contributed a lot. Just before we get into discussing your paper further and also looking at some of the uses, which clearly we cannot discuss all of them, there's just too many. Just because you found PFAS in a use, you know, enlisted it in a category of use, does that mean that all of those listed categories in your appendix, does it mean that the PFAS is in use in those categories today or are some of them historic uses? Um, some of them might be historical. We have only found for a few cases very where we can say this is current use, but for most of the uses we suspect that they are still ongoing. But it's very hard to find, like from the last two years, evidence this is still in use. So we have collected everything what we found, but it could still be that some are not in use anymore. The uses paper comes with three electronic supplementary information documents which provide a lot more detail on the uses that are mentioned in the main uses paper. And they even explain why PFAS might have been used. So the PDF, it's more an alphabetical list of uh, first industrial branches and then the other use categories. And I've basically listed first, for example, building and construction. And then you find why are PFAS used in this area? And then there's separate subcategories, maybe for building and construction, it would be um, that they're used in the roofs or in cable and wires. And then you find those chemicals or those PFAS that I have identified, either via patterns or because they have measured in the products. And this goes on and on with the 200 uses. So it's more like really a, something you want to know about artificial turf and why PFAS are used there, then you jump to artificial turf. The uses paper states it is not entirely clear where the PFAS in artificial turf originate from, but mould release is one option. Fluorinated surfactants are effective mould release agents due to their oleophobic and hydrophobic nature. Release agents are chemicals that aid in the separation of a mould from the material being moulded. PFAS have been detected in artificial turf. Detected PFAS include 6.2 fluorotalamus sulfonic acid and PFOS. It's not that you would read it from the front to the back, but it's more a list of things and you can go straight away. If we see it in your appendix and we want to know more, we can just match it up to the ESI. Yeah, and then there's a supplementary two 
And this has all the chemicals, all these 1,400 PFAS, and I've put them there with a like small graphic of their structure, so it's easier to see what kind of molecule it is. And then there's even a third supplementary information, and there I've provided for those researchers who do want to find uh, PFAS maybe in soil and they don't know what they have to look for. They can see, okay, now I'm looking here at an electronic manufacturing plant and the soil might be contaminated from this production plant. So what do I have to expect in the soil? And then they can go on the search, supporting information. The uses paper states that the ESI-3 may also be valuable for identifying sources of PFAS in the environment. Some uses may impart characteristic PFAS fingerprints, that is, PFAS contamination patterns to environmental samples that could identify a source. And I listed all the chemicals with their masses, for example, their, what they need for their actual analytical work. So this was also a request from the researchers that they say we would really love to have these masses that we can do our analytical techniques to find out what is in soil, what is in water. Are you talking about scientists? Yes, scientists, yes. For example, Xenia Tria, she is also one of the co-authors. She said that would be very valuable for scientists who do research, who do analytical work to have the third supporting information. So this is not for journalists. Who did you have in mind when you provided all that extra resource to go with the paper? Who's going to benefit? Yeah, I think different kind of people. So first of all, regulators who now need to decide how to proceed with PFAS, but also manufacturers who might produce alternatives, like produce alternatives to currently used products with PFAS. So they have to know what PFAS, what kind of functions they fulfill at the moment. I mean, it's easy with ski wax, for example. PFAS are used in ski wax so that the ski would glide better. And this is like an obvious case, what PFAS are doing. But there are a lot of functions where it's not so obvious why PFAS are used. And our intention was to clearly describe what is the use case, what is the function that PFAS provide in this use case, and why can PFAS provide this function? So is it because they are hydrophilic? Is it because they are maybe very stable? Is it what what kind of properties? And so manufacturer of alternatives can now look into the function and what is needed to replace them. And I think this is an important contribution to the field to move away from PFAS. Yes, because as as I discussed with Ian in the last episode, you know, industry make a lot of money from a lot of these chemicals and research and development is very expensive for companies. And if they have to change their product lines, they've really got to have a reason to do so, don't they? And sometimes they might just say that it's not possible, but your paper could be used as a resource to show that it is possible to replace some of these chemicals. Would would you agree with that statement? Um, yes and no. So first of all, we are just showing where are PFAS used. And this is already important so that those who want to look for alternatives, they have to know that maybe in chrome plating, this is an obvious case, but they are used there to prevent evaporation of chromium. But if they just know it's used in chrome plating, they cannot really develop alternatives until they really know in detail why they are used there. For, say, electroplating, it's to prevent the evaporation of the chromium-6, which was in the Aaron Brockovich movie. Everybody knows that one. But 
Also, you mentioned nickel plating, copper plating, tin plating. It seems to be very widespread across the whole plating industry. Yes, that seems to be the case. That's correct. Do you know if there's alternatives? I think you were starting to say that there might be some alternatives for the electroplating, but are they actually in use? Yes. So with chrome plating, they divide it into a like those which have only a thin chrome plating and then those ones which have a thick chrome plating. And you can use chromium-3 for the thin chrome plating. They call it decorative chrome plating. And so far, industry is always saying we cannot use it for the thick chrome plating, for the hard chrome plating, as they call it. But I have now discovered that there are actually two companies. One is in the US, have also production facilities in France, and one is a German producer. They are also using chromium-3, which is much less toxic than chromium-6, for the thick chrome plating. I think what you're saying is rather than replacing the PFAS, they just replace the type of chromium that they're using to be a safer one. Yes, that's correct. And then the use of PFAS, which I think was PFOS in this instance, is no longer needed. Yes, but for example, in Switzerland, they are even still using PFOS because they have no better alternative. And that's why we made this paper so detailed and with so many uh, um, explanations so that those ones who would like to develop alternatives um, know what they have to develop at the end. It's not to say that we can develop for all of these uses alternatives. It's more like an, if you want to develop alternatives, your molecule or your product has to fulfill this function because this is what PFAS are doing at the moment. Do you hope that this paper could speed up the process of eliminating, phasing out the non-essential uses of PFAS? Yes, I hope so that um, at least we have identified some of them. Do you hope that it will also lead to companies making greener, cleaner, alternative chemicals to replace the PFAS? Yes. I mean, I'm not sure if my paper can go so far to really make this transition step, but at least it should be seen as a basement or as a basis so that we know where to start. We know where are the starting points to get to a greener and more sustainable chemistry. So when people look at your huge list of the uses, because as we, as you said before, over 200 uses, as people look through your list, like the general public, maybe people who are living in communities where they've already been exposed to a high amount of PFAS through their drinking water or their crops because of PFAS contamination, some of them might look at these uses and actually feel very overwhelmed at where PFAS is. What would you like to say to those people that are listening? Maybe first of all, don't worry about those PFAS which you have now already in your home, like maybe in your carpet or your sofa or your textiles. Most of these, especially the floor polymers in the use phase, they are not, let's say, a danger to human health once they are there. I would say it's more important from a sustainable point of view not to replace now all your carpets, all your sofas, because it's also a value to keep something for a long time. So don't panic and say, oh, I have to get rid of everything what has maybe floor polymers in my home. This would also be not correct. But there are decisions which, as a consumer, you can take. If you buy, for example, a new outdoor jacket, you can go into outdoor stores. Some have labels with Gore-Tex, and Gore-Tex is a PFAS. And some have labels, let's say, at least in Europe, PFC, which is an old name for PFAS, PFC-free. 
And then you have the choice because at least in, in the stores here in Zurich, they are clearly marked as PFC free or with Gorotex. And there you can decide if you want to buy something with PFAS or without. And there are other choices. Cosmetics, some of them do contain PFAS and some do not. And again, this is something you put on your skin maybe or your the cream. And in your supplementary information, you talk about PFAS have been used in cosmetics as emulsifiers, lubricants. You list some things there like PFAS in hair conditioning to enhance wet combing, PFAS in creams to penetrate the skin more easily, PFAS in cosmetics and personal care, I can't list them all, but you, you know, here's some here: anti-frizz, um, foundation, blush, body lotion, body cream, eye pencil, eyeliner, face cream, cuticle treatment. When you look at that, you can feel concerned that it's in that many personal care products. Yeah, I was shocked when I saw this list. I have to admit, I even found one type of soap, like a normal bar soap, which contains PFAS which is just not necessary. And when you look at these items in the shop, you know, I look at the labels, but I can't identify PFAS and most people can't identify PFAS in these everyday products. What would we be looking for to know if it's a PFAS chemical? I'm not sure if you can, if there are no ingredients list on the products, if you can find out yourself, but you can go to your retailer. You can go to the people and say, I would like to buy something which has no fluorine or no PFAS in it. Can you find out for me what does hit and what does not? And then they have to go back to their suppliers and ask them. And I think this is an important thing we can do to ask for PFAS-free products. Then it's on the salesperson or on the retailer to find out what does contain it and what's not. I've done that in stores and they say, what is PFAS? They have no idea. So are you saying we should ask for fluorine-free? Is that a better way to ask for it? Yes. Yes, you can ask for Florence free. Yes, that's a good way to ask. You say in your abstract of your paper that the identified use categories that you found included many categories not described in scientific literature so far, including PFAS in ammunition, climbing ropes, guitar strings, artificial turf, and this one's interesting, soil remediation. I wonder if we could just discuss a couple of those, like perhaps the ammunition and the climbing ropes first. What can you tell me about the PFAS in the ammunition? So fluoropolymers, which are also PFAS and which are polymeric in their form, they have been added to ammunition to make the final product rubbery. And this reduces the likelihood of an unplanned explosion due to shock. Maybe some, somebody hits it or it falls from the floor that's not maybe exploding right away. Not a use that I would have thought. And we already know that military bases all around the world are finding PFAS contamination from firefighting foam. And now they need to look at their rifle ranges, I think. Would you agree? Yes. So I found this use actually from a petition. This was... In Tennessee, in the U.S., they are living, these people who do this petition, they are living close to the Holston Army ammunition plant, and they are, want to use APA to prohibit the further open burning of this ammunition in the open place, because this would also release PFAS to the air, and then these people would just get effects from the air they are breathing. What was the result of their petition? 
or I haven't followed this very closely, I just found that PFAS is actually used in ammunition, what surprised me. Another one that I find interesting, and you also would find this interesting because I believe you like to climb, rock climbing. PFAS are in climbing ropes. Can you please explain why we would find PFAS there? PFAS are used in climbing ropes because they impart water and stain resistant to the climbing ropes. And there are some very strict regulations from the UEAA and they are having very strict guidelines how much water such a climbing rope is allowed to suck up or like to, to take up. And so far it has always been PFAS that are used to prevent this water take up. There has been a German company, it's called Edelrit, and they have two years ago developed the first um, PFAS-free climbing rope. So they really market as we have the first PFC-free climbing rope on the market. This was also in one of the climbing magazines, which we are reading. So we came across this and was like, oh, if they announce the first world ever PFAS-free climbing rope, then all the others must have PFAS. So I came across this use. On the 7th of December 2020, there was an article published by Miner and others about PFAS levels on Mount Everest. Miner and others state in the paper, Mount Everest contains the highest altitude chemical contamination on land. They found PFOS, PFOA and PFHXA in Mount Everest snow and meltwater. The authors state that the growing presence of trekkers and climbers in the Mount Everest region over the past 50 years has increased the opportunity for direct deposition of PFAS. Miner and others state, we suggest that direct human deposition contributes significantly to the PFAS signature of Mount Everest. They further state that between 1951 and 2019, over 17,000 summit attempts were made with the numbers of climbers rising each year. Studies have indicated that PFOS and PFOA used for waterproofing in outdoor clothes, packaging, tents or other gear can be lost to the local environment. Detected PFAS levels were highest in snow collected at base camp and camp 2, where trekkers and climbers spend considerable time. I'll put a link to that article in the show notes. The next rope which I would buy is, of course, the one from Edelrit without PFAS. But as I said before, with the couch and with the sofa, I currently have a climbing rope, which works quite well. And it's again, if you have something, I wouldn't throw it away to buy something new, which is then more sustainable, because throwing something away and producing something new is also not sustainable. So I think we have to see it from a bigger picture as well. Yes, because PFAS in the waste stream is a huge problem, isn't it? Yes. Definitely. But I was more worried if there are other climbing equipment like my harness or my shoes, which may also contain PFAS, but I was not able to find any information on this. And this bothered me a lot. And in my next project, I will look into more detail also on this one. And we will also contact Edelwood. I think if more people buy it, then they will also invest more, develop more ropes because there are different ropes for different purposes, also for climbing. But it's good that they have developed this coding and they are making the first step forward. This is very important. That's right. I couldn't find the detail where PFAS are used in soil remediation. That doesn't make any sense to me because soils that are contaminated with PFAS 
you know, they're spending lots of money, Department of Defense and other scientists are spending money to find ways to remove the PFAS from soil. So how are the PFAS used in soil remediation? Okay. Yes, you're right. This is a bit of a strange application. So PFAS are used for the soil remediation of volatile hydrocarbon contaminants. So these are chemicals which very easily would go from the soil into the air. And PFAS are used as a vapor barrier material, which is placed on top of the contaminated soil. They reduce the likelihood or the amount of these volatile hydrocarbon contaminants to go into the air. We would find hydrocarbons in old petrol stations or anywhere where there's been fuel storage, correct? Yes. 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 So there have would be hundreds, thousands of these locations around the world that would have been remediated possibly with PFAS. Yeah, but again, I have not looked into too much detail here and this might only be one option how you can remediate those soils. I'm not saying it's used everywhere. Do you have a page reference for the listeners that want to go straight to your ESI and find that? Yes, it was page 236. Okay, page 236 in the ESI one. How did you feel when you discovered that use? Yeah, it's one of those where I say, why would they use it? Aren't there better alternatives? Are there better solutions than to remediate a soil with another chemical? And this may be one of the limitations of my study that I did not have the time to go into each of these uses in really detail. I guess I could have spent five years five years or ten years that's understandable i spent weeks looking at the biomedical applications of pfas and in your appendix of your main paper the title of medical utensils you list some things there that i found surprising one of them was x-ray imaging and magnetic resonance imaging or mri how are pfas used in those why are they used they're used as contrast agents because fluorine is not occurring in the body. And so if they're used as contrast agents, you can see where they go or where tumor is growing. And as far as I understood, they are using those PFAS which are not accumulating in the body. So they are leaving the body like after some hours or latest one or two days. How do they know they're leaving the body? There have been some tests, but this is one of the key points. I searched for these compounds in the European Chemical Database, and they have some properties about these chemicals there, but not too many, and sometimes it's only based on them estimations from like estimation softwares, not on real experiments. So there's not much data, and these chemicals are not so well researched. So I think they are safe. I think they have been researched well enough for these uses. But it's still bothering me that they are using them in the body. So When the doctor says, go get this MRI with contrast, they never tell you, oh, by the way, this is a PFAS chemical. They don't tell people that. Yeah, I don't think so. Yeah. Should they? I mean, if it's leaving your body very fast and you will not get any health problems from these substances, I think it's fair enough not to tell you. But I think you have to keep in mind that they are, because it's persistent, that they're very stable. They have to be produced and there are emissions during production and then there's always some leftovers. So even if it's only small amounts which are used, these chemicals, once they are produced, they are in the environment and they're not going away. 
They are called forever chemicals for a good reason. You raise a very good point there that your list of categories, your 200 uses, some of these products are stable, right? They're inert when we're using them, like you said. But when those items are manufactured, what's happening to the waste streams and the workers that make these products? Is that what you're saying? Yes, that's exactly the point. That also some of them, especially the polymers, are not harmful once you're in the use phase, but the production and the recycling, there are massive problems from the environmental point of view. And that's why we want to get rid of them. How can you describe their use in ophthalmology in eyes? I think there's different uses. So one of is in eye drops. So they have been used as delivery agent for one of these medications for DES, which is dry eye syndrome treatments. Did you say dry eye treatment? Yes. Contact lenses. You've just got listed there that it's a raw material and it doesn't say you know, the property of the PFAS being employed. So are you saying the contact lenses are made out of a PFAS plastic? Uh, Yes, this is what I found, that they are manufactured with PFAS. Would that be all contact lenses or you don't, you couldn't possibly say without doing thorough research? Yes, I cannot say all contact lenses have been made with PFAS. This would be not correct. So the information I got from a book, which is like 15 years old now, but there have been uses in contact lenses and we would need to look in more detail what is used today if they are still in current uses or is this an old application as far as myself as a journalist and there are many journalists looking at PFAS around the world your paper is so very useful for us to now start to do some more work as well as researchers to look at these uses and just find out whether they are current or whether they are finished Especially in the biomedical applications. It's been put into the lungs. Can you believe that? That's true. So PFCs have been used for liquid breathing. Yes, because they can carry a lot of oxygen. And so they're used as an oxygen carrier in the lungs. Now, this next section I can only briefly touch on. It is very complex. There are dozens and dozens of articles on PFCs, the old name for PFAS chemicals, how they've been used in biomedical applications. Liquid breathing is a form of respiration in which a normally air-breathing organism breathes an oxygen-rich liquid, such as perfluorocarbon, rather than breathing air. The physical properties of PFC liquids vary substantially. However, the one common property is their high solubility for respiratory gases. In fact, these liquids carry more oxygen and carbon dioxide than blood. In the early 1960s, it was discovered that fluorocarbon, a substance first produced during World War II, is an excellent carrier of oxygen. In 1963, A researcher, Clark, discovered during animal studies that the fluorocarbon known as FC75 not only supported respiration during total immersion, but that the mice survived indefinitely in apparent good health. This marked the beginning of biomedical research into the use of fluorocarbon liquids to support respiration. In addition, Fluorocarbons have been the focus of extensive study as potential candidates for the development of blood substitutes. They've even been used to ventilate newborn babies in some old studies I found. Okay, wow, that's crazy. 
Neo Reviews is an online journal directed at individuals involved with neonatal and perinatal medicine. In a Neo Review article from 1999 by Schaefer and others, it discusses PFC liquids, PFAS liquids, use in liquid-assisted ventilation. The first human trials of PFC liquid breathing were conducted in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania in 1989 and were initiated in near-death infants who had severe respiratory failure. All of the infants in these studies ultimately died from their underlying respiratory disease. From a detailed search of research literature, it's unclear to me whether these PFC liquids have been adopted into routine clinical practice for use in patients' lungs, even though there is documented evidence of their use in human trials, including infants and adults. However, upon further research, I came across a 2017 article called A Breath of Fresh Perfluorocarbon by Daniel Carroll, published in Carnegie Mellon University College of Engineering. This article includes a three-minute video presentation by a PhD student, Diane Nelson. Her presentation is called Drug Delivery to the Lungs Using Perfluorocarbon Emulsions. In this presentation, she's discussing a proposed concept to deliver drugs to infected or diseased lungs by filling the lungs with another liquid liquid perfluorocarbons. She says during her presentation, Now I know what you are thinking. Fluid in the lungs means drowning, but perfluorocarbons have a high oxygen solubility, so you can first saturate the perfluorocarbon with oxygen and then put it in the patient's lungs. She states this is what is done clinically in hospitals and patients do not drown. Diane Nelson said her research specifically deals with infected mucus what is seen in cystic fibrosis patients, and her goal is to find an emulsion formulation that maximises bacterial killing. She finishes her presentation with this statement, I believe that perfluorocarbon drug delivery is a great method to help patients breathe easier. The information in her presentation is a strong indicator that perfluorocarbons are being used in clinical practice and that more applications are planned for their use in the human body. And I'll put a link to this article which includes the three-minute video in the show notes. Now back to the interview with Juliana. On page two of your paper, your main paper, it says the Fluoro Council has provided additional information on the uses of PFAS However, the information is rather generic with limited details about specific uses and substances. Hence, a comprehensive overview that summarises major current uses is missing. So my question here is, PFAS have been used in society since around 1940, right? That's their earliest use, 1940, 1950, I believe. That's almost 80 years. Why do you think a comprehensive overview that summarises these major current uses is missing? Why don't we have this? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think the Floral Council, they're of course advertising their products, how great PFAS are. And actually, from the functionality, they are great. They can deliver all these very important functions. So, of course, they're advertising, but their list is not complete. They're just pointing to some of the uses. 
And then there has been a, um, a very good book, which also now is 20 years ago from Kissa et al. They have looked at the uses, but they had only 30 use categories, but they were very detailed and they looked at the patents and finding out which substances have been patented for some of these um, applications. And then there's a lot of research on uh, maybe very specific, maybe textiles and firefighting forms. But yes, yeah, so far there has been nobody to put all the uses together. Some have just concentrated on fluoropolymers, putting all um, applications of fluoropolymers together. Some only of some acetic acids like PFAAs. PFAAs are pan polyfluoroalkyl acids, and they include those ones which we which are very common, like PFOA and PFOS. Okay, so PFOS and PFOA, which we've talked about a lot in the podcast, they are a type of PFAS that is referred to as PFAAs. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. And they are non-polymeric, so they are like short molecules. And then there's other also non-polymeric groups. And then there's also these polymeric. We haven't discussed polymeric. It's a term that's not uh, familiar to me. Maybe I say it differently. And then, then there's those which are more of the plastic type. And those are, for example, fluoropolymers. And they would appear like plastic. So they are solids and sometimes they are like have different colors. Sometimes they're even without color, so you can look through it. So these are very different types. Do all plastic products contain PFAS? Uh, no. PFAS are also used in the production of plastic and rubber, but not all plastic do contain PFAS. I think you had three main sources to provide you with the data that you needed to compile this incredible list that you've created. What were your sources? So first of all, I looked into reports and books that addressed fluorosurfactants and these PFAS in general. I also looked into some information from chemical databases. There's one database in the US, which is very important, and one in the European, in the northern countries. And maybe uh, two more important sources were patents, where I searched for PFAS and its applications. But I also looked into uh, information from companies that manufacture and sell the PFAS. So what is their marketing? What do they want to sell them for? And the last but also very important source is articles where they measure the PFAS and then they know this and this chemical has been found, for example, in this soap or in this dishwashing liquid. So these are the main important sources. Your paper says that this present study, your paper, is the first of its kind to systematically compile a wide range of known as well as poorly documented uses of PFAS. Is there no other study like yours on PFAS? There's not such a study so far. There were studies on uh, parts of chemicals, like on plastics, like PFAS in plastics, and there were studies uh, which are like 20 years old and now outdated. But in the last 20 years, there was not such a systematic and comprehensive um, overview of the uses of PFAS. And then in the conclusion, there's a couple of other uh, key points there that you even found that some consumer products have multiple applications of PFAS within the same product, like a cell phone. Could you just explain that for me? Yes. So in a cell phone, you have an, uh, wires and cables, and they might be uh, using PFAS. And then you have the touch screen, which uh, is resistant to your fingerprints. And this is a coating made out of PFAS. 
and then there's this semiconductor device inside which you need to store the information and to process all the information and this semiconductor device this was being produced using PFAS so there are a lot of components of the cell phone. There are lots of programs out there to recycle our mobile phones and to donate them when you're done with them and they will recycle them. That kind of bothers me because what's happening to the PFAS in the recycling phase? This is a good question. This is one of the main drivers, which is really also leading the whole research because these chemicals, if they come into the recycling phase, they will be in the next product as well and they will not go away, they will stay there. In your conclusion, you say that the search for alternatives is going to be challenging and an extensive task. Do you think this is going to be something that can be done quickly or is going to take decades? Uh, that's a difficult question. Uh, I think for some users it will be fast because there are already alternatives on the market and we just have to use them. One example might be bicycle lubricants. So there are some bicycle lubricants where PFAS are used and some have been developed without PFAS and it would be easy to switch to those ones without PFAS. This would be very straightforward and there's no need for those ones with PFAS. There are also maybe electroplating or chrome plating is also called. There have been a lot of development in the past and I think methods are now ready to be implemented that they change their production methods and not using PFAS for chrome plating anymore. But maybe this is expensive and companies don't want to switch if they don't have to. So this might also be uh, something which could be fast, but it's depending on how much pressure there is on the companies. And then there might be those uses, like in the semiconductor industry, where there's not maybe a lot of research and it's maybe also difficult to replace them. So this might take much longer. Yeah, I've got a couple of uses here, which we didn't talk about in the industry branches. And I just want to quickly pull out a couple of those. In the aerospace industry, I'll just mention a few here. Brake and hydraulic fluids. Do you remember the function of those? Why they're used in brake and hydraulic fluids? Yes, they're used for corrosion protection. They are mainly for the normal airplanes but they're also uses for the airspace. Okay, so again, when we talk about these uses, it doesn't mean that um, there's necessary exposure to communities or to people, but the exposure could happen in the manufacturing phase. And certainly it goes into the environment at the end phase. That's the problem with all of these, isn't it? Yes. Okay, building and construction. I've got two examples. Architectural membranes, for example, in roofs. What is the function of PFAS there? So in building construction, the PFAS that are used there, they are very light and they resist weathering and they are dirt repellent. Did you find it to be widespread? Um, it's all in these big stadiums or concert halls. A lot of them have these architectural membranes as roofs. So it's widespread, yes. It's widespread. And why are PFAS used in greenhouses? They're used um, instead of glass because, again, they are transparent to both UV and visible light. They are resistant to weathering and they are dirt repellent. Um, that's why they're used in greenhouses as well. So many surprising uses. I think what I've learned as I've looked at your paper and what I think the audience and the listeners will get when they listen and they read your work is just we've heard in media reports and many articles 
you know, around the world, often they'll talk about PFAS as one monolithic group and they'll just say that PFAS have phased out or not in use anymore or legacy contaminants. But it's not true, is it? There's only a couple of PFAS that have phased out and not in every country. That's the understanding that I have. Yes, that's entirely correct. So PFOS and PFOA, they are the ones who have been restricted in some countries or in some regions of the world, but all the other PFAS, and there are thousands of them, they are still allowed and they are still in use. Does it surprise you, it surprises me, that there is not more media reporting on PFAS in these wider uses. We've heard a lot about the firefighting foams and that's still a problem, you know, and there's class actions in Australia and other places in the world. But it surprises me that there's not more reporting on all of these other uses that you're talking about. Yeah, I think the main reason is that firefighting foams, they are used openly in the environment and they contaminate the environment directly. It goes to the drinking water, it goes to your food, and then people are affected, and this raises the intention. But many of the other products, they are problematic in the production phase. So you have a lot of reporting for the fluoropolymer production in the Netherlands, in Italy, in the US. So there are a lot of scientific papers, but also newspaper coverage of this contamination. But then the product itself, they are not so much in the focus, because as I said before, they are not of a health problem for the users at the moment in the use phase. Maybe regulators think they can just address it in a slower manner, but perhaps your paper can open the door to just more awareness out there of the wide range of PFAS uses today. Yes, I think so. Your paper says, we propose that the following use categories need to be prioritised for reducing or eliminating the use of PFAS. And you name three categories. Can you tell me what those three categories are that you think need prioritization for phasing out or eliminating? Um, So we have the PFAAs and precursors and we have identified three categories for them. And then we have identified two categories for the hydrofluorocarbons. And we have also identified two categories for the fluoropolymers. Could you explain precursors Yes, so precursors are those ones which can break down in the acids, like the uh, final degradation products that are very persistent and stable in the environment. These can be long-chain ones, but also short-chain ones. Okay, and the hydrofluorocarbons we talked about and the fluoropolymers we talked about, but your paper notes there, and, and you say it must be noted that fluoropolymers and hydrofluorocarbons are produced and used in much larger quantities than that first category, than the PFAs and their precursors. Are you saying the fluoropolymers and hydrofluorocarbons need to have a significant amount of attention? Yes, they do have to have significant amount of attention, but we should also not forget the first group because they have been shown to be very toxic and they have also been shown to have health effects in humans. So that we have separated them in these three groups. The first group is those ones which are the PFOA or PFOS, for example, which have shown all these health effects. And the other two groups, they show different effects. For example, the hydrofluorocarbons, they have a very high global warming potential. And that's why they're also of concern. Are all hydrofluorocarbons containing PFAS? 
So hydrofluorocarbons are PFAS. So this is just a group of PFAS. And one example where they are used is, for example, in refrigerants as heat transfer and cooling agents. And before there have been the Montreal Protocol, and the Montreal Protocol has banned all these ocean depletion substances. And then they have switched, for example, to 1H pentafluoroethane, which is just one of these hydrofluorocarbons. But this now has a new problem. This chemical has a very, very high global warming potential. So we have switched it to something which is now a new problem. Wow. Okay. We talked about plastics and rubber, but fluoropolymers, you give another example of coatings and paints and varnishes. So you paint your house, it's probably got PFAS in it. It does not have to have PFAS, but it might have it. And then it's used to impart oil and water repellency to the paint. But you did find evidence of fluoropolymers use in those products, coatings and paints and varnishes. Yes, I did. Where was this article published? It's Environmental Science, Process and Impacts. Is that a reputable journal to be published in? Yes, it is a good journal and it's also a peer-reviewed journal. So there have been other scientists or regulators who had to judge our article and say if it's correct and if it's well written and if the language is okay. And only after these reviews, it got accepted for publication. And we got very, very good reviews, I have to say. I was very happy. Fantastic. And could you quickly summarize the limitations of the paper? So the limitations of the paper, we can put them in three categories for the users, for substances, and for the quantities I've published. And for the users, I have to say that the paper is not exhaustive. I may have missed uses. I think I have covered most of the big use areas. But as we mentioned before, I found PFAS in climbing ropes, but maybe they're also used in climbing harnesses. We don't know. So we cannot say we have covered everything, but we have probably covered the majority. You've certainly seemed to have covered the most so far of any paper. Yes, so far. From what we have seen in the databases, for example, of the European Nordic countries, they have listed there all the big categories where PFAS are used. And this came from the importer and producers. And we have covered all these categories. Did you look at market reports to get some information like industry reports? Yes, I also looked at them, but then I realized that there might be a, a fake information in there because these companies who produce these market reports, they produce hundreds to 1,000 of these market reports per year and they are very long, 200 to 300 pages. And I know how long it takes to put deep researched information together to write a report which is 200, 300 pages long. So it must be 100 to, let's say, 1,000 of employees in those um, companies. So I emailed them asking, how many employees do you have? But there was no answer. And I searched a bit in the internet and I found like an opinion from someone who's working in such a consultant industry. And he says, um, there are not enough employees to research those reports very in-depth. So it's more about quantity and less about quality. And they're also not giving the references that's why we decided at the end to not use information from the market reports. And don't they cost a lot of money, these market reports? Yes, they are very expensive. And we would also not have the money to pay them. Thousands of dollars, right, for a report? Yes, thousands of dollars. You can get some free sample pages, 
but to get the whole report, it's like several thousands of US dollars. Not really accessible, but your paper is very accessible. The work that you've provided for free, like I said, it's really great to see such a detailed paper written, but also that it's available to anybody, whether they are just general public or working in these areas or firefighters, regulators, scientists, researchers, journalists. And I think that's what makes it a key paper. Certainly one of the key PFAS papers that I have read and I've read hundreds. Wow, thank you a lot. I noticed in the food production in your appendix, you have listed their wineries and dairies. Where is the PFAS in the winery and the dairy? I think they use it for the filtration of the wine. Filtration. Yeah, the filters, they are PFAS. So I found it's a final filtration before the bottling, which uses these filters, but I cannot say if it's used in all wineries or if it's just occasionally used. I don't know. Do you know why they would use them in the filtration? What's the purpose? Uh, because the PFAS resist degradation and so they're very stable. The filter will last longer. Any acids which are maybe in the wine, they will not harms a filter. Just before we go, is there anything else that you would like to say about your paper or about PFAS? No, I think mainly I'm done. I would like to thank my funding agency, which is the Federal Office for the Environment in Switzerland and also Tides Foundation in the US. I was very lucky I got money from them to do my research. It's always a bit of hassle for us to get money for those kind of research. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it was good that I was able to put all these uses together and, and they now form the basis for the next step of research. Is there anything else you want the listeners to know before we go? Maybe I would just would like to point out again that we are as consumers, we are not powerless. And if you go and buy new, maybe outdoor jackets, cosmetics, lubricants, whatever products, go and ask what is in there. Are they fluorine-free? Are they using PFAS? And I think this is important that this demand for fluorine-free comes from the consumers and that they are raise awareness from the other side of the value chains. Not only regulators and scientists who look at it, but also consumers and that they bring this topic to the retailers who actually have them to ask again, so what are PFAS and why are you concerned? I think it's important that if you are aware of PFAS and the problem, then go out and ask about it and make this a topic in the public domain. Fantastic. What about other feedback to your paper? And that's my last question. I've got a lot of feedback from regulatory authorities and they are very happy. They have the paper, especially in Europe, where they're now going for this restriction proposal for PFAS. They said this is a very valuable input and very important for them. They told me they're using it already. We could talk about it for so much longer. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. Now, I've listened now to more of these podcasts and you're doing a great job. It's really, I really like them. They are great. And please keep going. This is amazing work, what you do. Thank you again for talking with me in Talking PFAS Podcast. Thank you a lot for having me in Talking PFAS Podcast. Ciao. Juliane and her team found so many uses of PFAS, but we could only discuss a small portion of them in today's discussion. So I encourage you to have a read of her peer-reviewed article, which was accepted for publication in the Environmental Science Processes and Impacts Journal, on the 23rd of September, 2020. You might have noticed that Talking PFAS has some new intro music. Hope you enjoy that. Hope you enjoyed today's episode. This has been the last one for 2020. I'd like to thank you though 
for listening during 2020. It's been a challenging year and I'm grateful for everyone who has still continued to listen and support this podcast. And also a very big thank you to all the guests in 2020 who have contributed to this podcast. I'd like to thank you for your expertise and your knowledge and the stories that you've shared with me in 2020. I look forward to coming back in 2021 with some more resident stories from Australia and also firefighters in Australia, how they have been and how they are being affected by PFAS. I'd like to wish you all a happy new year. We hope that uh, things change with COVID and we start to see uh, success from all these vaccines in 2021. Thank you again for listening. All information in today's episode is copyright. Please contact me for reuse permissions. Talkingpfas at gmail.com. See you next time.